I've heard it called cuddle. Do you not call it cube, cuddle? Cube cuddle. Um, no, I, I don't call it cube cuddle. Um, I, I, I cuddle my cats. I don't cl cuddle my clusters. <laughs> you could restore it all. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All Podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me my backdoor Roth consultant, Prasanna Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? <laughs> I'm good, Curtis. You might want to explain what that is because people are like, well, yeah, what did or, he just or, or say? Or should I say my, my backdoor non-Roth because <laughs> you're not advising me on backdoor Roth, but you're offering information that I can yes, use I'm at not my own a, disposal. Yes, I'm like an encyclopedia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like, you're like, or like Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're like a Wikipedia with a beard. Um, yeah. So, uh, the not everyone can contribute to directly to a Roth IRA, which is an IRA where you you put in after tax money, and then you know there's tax advantages to that when you when you withdraw the money. And so there is this thing called a backdoor Roth, which I literally never even heard of until Persona brought it up. And it's where you convert, <clears throat> you put money in another retirement account, and then you convert that account into a Roth IRA. There is both a backdoor Roth IRA and then something called a mega backdoor Roth IRA, which is... Which works with a 401k plan. 401k, yep. right. But not and, all plans support um, it, so make sure you call your plan it. administrator. Exactly, where you contribute after-tax money to your 401k, and then you can convert. If you can do a mega backdoor Roth, it's the limit much higher. It's what, like 35 or something? Yeah, I think overall in your 401k, including employer match, it's like $58,000 a year. Yeah, yeah, versus the backdoor Roth IRA, which for people my age, uh, the limit is $7,000 per year which is a lot smaller than the mega backdoor Roth, but my 401k doesn't support it. So like I said, Prasanna and I have been talking a lot about retirement uh, and by retirement. When I say talking about retirement, I mean planning for retirement. I'm just not that old, not that old yet. But, but by the way, you did buy a piece of furniture, which a lot of people might say is kind of retirement age furniture. What, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm just saying when you buy you a because, couch because I when, had a couch to, when you have a couch with powered recliners <laughs> so you don't even have to manually lean back in your chair I'm just saying that some people might say that that is getting ready for retirement there's <laughs> I really don't know what to say to that I I feel I feel I don't know, maligned in some way. I am proud of that couch. That it is a nice I couch. Got my wife to to consent to said couch because it the, the couch that we got was sort of the it's the only one that she felt was not too ugly to allow it in the home. That so many of the reclining couches they are they are so obviously reclining couches. Yeah. This one. You know, it's like your everyone wants like the traditional lazy boy reclining look that yeah. looks super nice and comfy that you're like, oh, I just got to curl up in this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I did spend uh, a lot of money on 
uh, two new couches. Um, so and they are awesome and comfy though. They are. They are very nice. I, I everyone seems to like many couches, so I'm not going to hear any any lip from anyone, including you, persona. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, well, our our guest is sitting there going, "What in the world have I gotten myself into?" Before I bring on our guest, I'm going to do our uh, standard disclaimer. Persona and, I, Persona and I work for different companies. He worked for Zoom. I work for Druva. This is not a podcast of either company. The opinions that you hear are ours. Please sure to rate this podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash restore. And also, you can qualify for a drawing to win a free ebook of my O'Reilly book, uh, that came out in May uh, called Modern Data Protection. And all you need to do to qualify for that drawing is to subscribe to our mailing list at BackupCentral.com. Do they get a signed copy? Do they get a signed copy? No, they don't. It's an okay. e-book. Okay. It is an e-book. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's no, e-book. because you were at reInvent recently. And I you... was at reInvent, and we did signing of a bunch of stuff. And that was that was... That was really fun. I haven't done a book signing in yeah. a while, but uh, no, it'll That's be a exciting. free ebook copy yeah. sent to them directly from O'Reilly. But speaking of O'Reilly, I'd like to bring on our guest this week. He has been in IT for uh, over 15 years and working with Kubernetes for the last three or so. He is the cloud native director at Contino and the co-author of Networking and Kubernetes from O'Reilly and Associates. He wrote it with Valerie Lancy. Welcome to the podcast, James Strong. Thanks for having me, Curtis. I'm excited to be here today. So always nice to have a fellow O'Reilly author on. When did your book come out? It was published in September, I believe. Oh, so so just a couple of months ago. A couple months ago. It's very recent. And I actually had a couple firsts. So this is my first podcast. And last (laughs) week was also my first uh, book signing. We, uh, the, my company Contino had a a cocktail hour and they also surprised me with a book signing and they had a big sign of my face and the books and everything <laughs> else. it was all very weird and awesome at the same time i enjoyed it uh, you know talked about kubernetes talked with some software engineers and it was a lot of fun no that's a yeah. big accomplishment like i saw curtis as he was writing his book and oh man the effort that goes into writing a book and making it so it's sensible when people read it it's a lot of effort <laughs> Well, I, I definitely hope it's sensible. We've been getting a lot of great feedback. And a uh, fun fact for your listeners, um, this was my COVID baby, as a lot of people would say. And Valerie and I, when we wrote this, it was all over digital means. We have not actually met in person yet. <laughs> like ever? Uh, well, at 2019 KubeCon, she gave the SIG uh, networking update, mm-hmm. and I listened to her give that update, but I never introduced myself, and we never had an actual conversation that in person. That is something. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, my book was also my COVID baby. I and I wrote it on another COVID baby. In that, um, I bought a treadmill uh, that uh, actually Druva. Uh, they gave us some money when when we first had you know when we were working from home and and I spent that money on a treadmill and I wrote the entire book on a treadmill using a Dragon uh, voice dictation software. Oh wow! Actually, yeah, pretty much everything I've written since my first book has been written in voice to voice but I, 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 I don't, I, voice using, dictation yeah using dictation so there I you go james for your next book yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll have to get i'll have to get some software from you then on that because that's uh wow i couldn't i couldn't walk on a treadmill and dictate a book at the same time so that's uh, that's <laughs> great <for this. laughs> i i actually find walking and talking 
Prasanna is going to, at some point, going to chime in. I can talk while doing anything. Um, <laughs> he can. And um, so, yeah, so I, what I do is I, I just, I walk and I talk. The big thing is I get the outline, right? I get the outline done. And mm -hmm. then I just dictate all of it as much as I can. And then when I get to a natural pause point, I just copy and paste the current, you know, however it is, five pages, 10 pages. I copy that into Google Docs. And then all of the editing was done in Google Docs up to the point that the publishers took over, right? Well, fortunately for me, the um, actually the book is an extrapolation from my A-Cloud Guru course on the same thing. So I have an A-Cloud Guru course, uh, AWS and networking on Kubernetes. And we had the outline from there and all it really was was getting O'Reilly and Valerie on the same page, working through all of that. So I had a lot of the, the research and text finished for it and we just now had to transpose it from a video medium into a book medium mm. so see the voice would have been perfect you could have <laughs> just sat there and listened to yourself talk <laughs> and then just said it over you know uh, I, I don't know how a clay guru would have felt about that but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh but uh well yeah, that's so exciting yeah, so nonetheless so yeah, yeah publishing congratulations on yeah. the new book thank and, you thank uh, you. may it do well your i think your topic is more exciting than my topic you know, data protection, but, uh, they're, and, both, and they're both important. The network, they, they are, they are both yeah. important. Uh, unfortunately, your, your title has more, um, what's the word keyword <laughs> attachment, you know, a, to a, it. Like SEO. Every, did you yeah, appreciate, yeah. did you appreciate the pun? What? A layered approach. Because oh, <laughs> networks yeah. have layers. Yes. Very nice. <laughs> very nice. I think I actually made a mistake in the name of my book. So I say modern data protection because I think of data protection is so much more than just backup, but yeah. it meant that the word backup isn't in the title. And mm. that's what people search for is they search for backup. So I had to get them, I figured that out after the fact that I had to add, have them add backup as a keyword, because if you went to O'Reilly.com and searched on backup, you didn't find my book. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of problem with that, Curtis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm as I do more and more blogs and content, like learning about SEO from our um, our content team. It's yeah. yeah, being able to find your content is the the first thing, right? Yeah. And then hopefully it, everyone enjoys it. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad to to say that my book now shows up in the first page if you search yeah. on backup. So James, what made you want to write a book? So you said you had a, a cloud guru course that you were teaching or that you have content for this, but why a book? Uh, <laughs> but why a book? Um, it actually was not in, uh, in my goals for writing a book. I actually was, I was still in midst of writing the a cloud guru course. And uh, as always, I go to videos and books to do my learning. And I was struggling with EVVF. And so I went and read the Linux observability with EVVF book. And I was talking with some of the co-authors at KubeCon. I asked them some questions about EVVF, trying to understand what it meant and how it interacted with the kernel and how that meant for you know, networking. And I was talking about the course. And he's like, I generally don't have people who ask these types of in-depth questions. I was like, well, because I'm working on the course and all of this. And he was like, you know, I think this would be a really good book. And I was like, really? And I was at first a little taken aback because, you know, it's O'Reilly. And so I put the book proposal together. He got me in contact with the acquisition editor. And 16 months later, they came out with a book. So, <laughs> nice. 
and then bada bing bada boom and you have a book <laughs> and then yeah yeah yada yada 16, yada 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 yada, yada. uh it was about 16 months uh there was a holiday in there and uh you know i took a little bit of time off in december so we got pushed back a little bit i actually had a a fun um did a fun writer's trope i actually was stuck on trying to finish chapter one and i went up to a cabin for the week i took a week off work and went up to a cabin and i did nothing but write and enjoy nature and I, that's how i was able to get into the crew nice. and finish chapter one well i got you beat on how long it took uh to write the book from the time i first conceived the idea of this book and actually the book being released 10 years <laughs> 10 years 10 years so oh, wow <clears throat> back in 2010 uh, you know i i came up with the idea and i was like i i want to do this book because my first book was more about like the open source world right and okay. i said i wanted to do a book that was more about the commercial world right all of the things that need to be backed up all of the different ways and difference between tape drives and dedupe systems and different different types of backup software and pros and cons of each. And I wanted to put that all in one book. And they were like, that sounds great. You know, what would be even better is for you to do a second edition of the first book, second <laughs> edition sell really well. So if do that now, and then you can do the, the other book next. And so I said, sure. And then life got in the way. Yeah, and then it, it took me once I, uh, you know, I got the clearance from Druva, it took me a solid year to put together and agree on what would fit into the outline. And then I remember when I sh first showed it to my acquisitions editor, he's like, this looks like a really good outline. Um, I think it looks like a 1500 page book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I said, cool. trust me, it is not going to be a 1500 page book. He's like, listen, you really can't be any bigger than like 500 pages. I said, trust me, it is not going to be bigger than 500 pages. It's just, the most well thought out outline I've ever put together to, to like been three, thinking about it for 10 three levels of detail. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so it ended up actually only being like 360 pages. I think ours right. clocked in at just, just about that, like maybe 350, 325, somewhere in there. It was, yeah. it was a, it, it's a lot. It's really hard just going through and understanding like what should you include, what shouldn't you include mm -hmm. and having that decision and going through that. Did you have a co-author? Cause we were at least able to yeah. have that back and forth. Oh, so you had to have those debates with yourself. I, I, I couldn't imagine having those debates by myself. Well, what I, what I did was I crowdsourced the outline okay, um, with a whole bunch of people, including persona where it's like, look, this is what I'm thinking about, you know, including. And I, I had dozens and dozens of people who took a look at that outline. I had it on Google docs and uh, subscribers to the podcast. Uh, actually, before it was a podcast, right? Subscribers to the mailing list on Backup Central. What they thought but, was uh, important and things like that. Yeah, that exactly, yeah. right. So what, how would you describe the book? What, you know, so this is specifically about doing networking in Kubernetes. I mean, when I look at the title, that's what I assume. Yeah, yeah. The networking in Kubernetes, the, the way I like to look at it, and, th and this is just most of the things in computer sciences, everything's driven by abstractions to make it easier for the person above you in that abstraction. And there's a lot of them in Kubernetes. And it kind of dawned on me a little bit. I was trying to troubleshoot, I think it was a volume issue. And at the time, the one, the person who's running the project who was helping me troubleshoot this, 
It's like you gotta, gotta think that it's it's just Linux. So it came down to a permissions issue on that volume mount. And just got me thinking that just looking at some of the other things that power networking, you know, it is IP tables, it's other things like that. And it's just trying to understand what those are and helping other folks who are either new or, you know, been a network engineer and they understand firewalls, they understand IP tables or a Linux administrator or someone who's new to networking. So that's why it's all a common thread. So it starts at just the basics of networking and then we build on the basics of networking onto what happens at the Linux kernel level when you open up a port and how that communication happens. And we go from there to container networking. Container networking, we talk about the C groups and namespaces and how that all abstracts all of the other things from a networking perspective. So it's a completely separate stat, network stack in the kernel that you can do with what you can, with what you want. And then we go from the kernel network, uh, Linux, ah, sorry. We go from the container networking to how Kubernetes manages all of those things for you. So we do a complete walkthrough of what like Docker does for you when you set up the networking stack and how Kubernetes manages it for you from that point of view. And then we go into how all of that works in the cloud ecosystem. So EKS does it a little differently than GKE, than AKS. They all have their own CNI or different ways of doing things. And we do this with a single common thread. We have a Golang API that is maybe about 10 lines of code. It's just a hello world API. And we walk through each one of those chapters, each one of those abstractions mm -hmm. with that same piece of code so you can understand what's going on. So it's that common thread throughout all of them. Towards the end there, you threw out like five acronyms in a row. What, yeah. what were those acronyms? So you threw out EKS GKE. So we'll EKS start with is the Elastic Kubernetes Service from AWS. So it's their managed service from, uh, for Kubernetes, so like all tools, all open source tools, you can run and do them yourself, which takes a lot of effort, a lot of overhead, a lot of knowledge from your workforce, or like the cloud says, you can use a managed service where Kubernetes takes care of it for you. So AWS has uh, EKS, which is Elastic Kubernetes Service, and then AKS, which is the Azure Kubernetes Service, that's from Microsoft Azure, and GKE, Google, uh, Google Kubernetes Engine. And go ahead. Go there was ahead. also another acronym that you threw out there with CNI. Uh, CNI. So that's the Container Network Interface. So that's another abstraction between the operating system and Kubernetes that allows a Kubernetes to say, go ahead and go create this in network interface for me. And they don't have to be worried about the details. And we allow the, the container network interface project to do that. So there's several open source versions on um, Cilium, um, there's um, Tigera, uh, I'm trying to forget what Tigera's is. Um, oh wow, Calico. There's Cilium, there's Calico, there's several others. AWS has their own VPC, CNI, and then I know AKS does. We talk through some of the distinctions and differences in the book, and then we run through a Cilium example that allows us to do network support, uh, network policy support. So as many of your listeners may not know, that the network in Kubernetes that's created is completely open. Any pod can talk to any pod. So when you're looking at deploying a CNI, you want one that has network policy support so that you can basically create firewalls between your pod's applications so that they don't have, um, so that they don't talk to one another or have things open. 
You threw you threw out an, another acronym <laughs> while describing the acronym. So that would be uh, acronyms and acronyms. Which yeah. is virtual private cloud. So yeah, that it well, you know, IT and networking especially is all about acronyms, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you uh, suffer VP... from uh, TOS. You know what that is? Uh, that's, uh, that's TLA <laughs> overload syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we we do go through these. It, a lot of the content in that cloud book is going over some of that common vernacular, but uh, VPC is virtual private cloud. So in the cloud network spaces, it's allowing folks to have a, basically a virtual network in the cloud network space. So in AWS, it's a VPC. I think that's pretty universal term, VPC across all three of the clouds. You're like, it's private, but it's in the public cloud. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's kind of the point. So right? it's virtual, and I, right. And I think AWS just came out, and I'm, I'm an AWS ambassador, so as I think we didn't talk about it in the intro, so I, most of my knowledge is going to come from AWS. Um, that's It was really nice. Actually, I have to give a shout out to uh, Thomas Finken. He's my Azure expert, so whenever I have an Azure question, I go to him. I actually had him help us write the Azure, Azure section of the book in Chapter 6. Because one of the things that I thought about with this was that I didn't feel comfortable giving folks production level you know, recommendations without actually having done it myself. So I reached out to a couple of folks and he's the one who came back and said, oh, I can help you with that. So he helped write the Azure section and the AKS section. And then Valerie has ran workloads with GKE. So we were able to split that up very nicely between the oh, three. Oh, nice. Gotcha. I was, I was just about to ask you what, what role Valerie played in the... Uh... In the writing of the book yeah well we we took turns writing um chapters and then editing so i wrote chapter one she edited it she wrote chapter two i edited it so we just went back and forth on that on the chapters and then you know that whole back and forth of like what should we include what should our examples be and it was nice to have that that sounding board i like it one of the things you threw out earlier was um a lot of people ask, probably you've heard this, maybe you have a good answer for this. I'm hoping you have a definitely have a good answer for this, is you talked about sort of stepping through that progression, right? Starting with Linux kernel, how is networking done? And then you get to containers, how is networking done? And then Kubernetes, how is containers done? I'm sure some of our listeners will ask the question, isn't containers and Kubernetes all just the same? <laughs> no, Ku Kubernetes is a container orchestrator. And actually within the, I forget how, how long ago it's been, there's actually an interface in there for the container runtime interface to allow Kubernetes to have multiple different types of container engines to be ran. So you've probably heard this uh, conversation around the Docker shim um, being deprecated and things like that. And it has to be ran with the, the container runtime specific one, so container D. So there's a difference between containers and Kubernetes. Kubernetes orchestrates containers, but when it comes to actually running a container, it depends on the runtime engine and how it implements that. Yeah, it, it, sees, it seems that each of the aspects of compute now have a an interface, because there's also the CSI, the container storage interface, Yep. the container networking interface, and what was the container runtime interface would be the other mm -hmm. one that you just talked about. Did I yep. miss one? Is there, that's pretty much, that's the three, right? That's compute, storage, compute network, network, and storage. Right? Yeah, those are the three Great. big ones. That's all you need to know to be in IT. <laughs> just, the three, just the three things. Just those little things. What What would you say is the, like, 
if you're going to be messing around with, you know, Kubernetes and networking, what's your like your top three things that you think maybe the average person, you know, doesn't know that they should know if they're doing that? Um, I think I've already mentioned the one with the uh, container network, uh, container network policies. That is being a big able, one. That is a big that, one. That's a big one. Being able to understand how you can lock down. Actually, I think even in the AWS VPC CNI, you can wait, migrate wait, that. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That was like 19 <laughs> acronyms in one phrase. So AWS have their oh, own yeah. container network interface. Okay. It's open source. It's called the AWS VPC CNI. Okay. And okay. Inside, inside that, it can use security groups. So instead of using network policies, you can use security groups with your pods to prevent traffic between everything. But if you're going if you're going to be working with networking, make sure you're supporting and putting through network policies in place. We've actually when I was um, I was working on this with a client and they were looking to turn on network policies and turn and be a, a default all. So no no traffic between anybody and you have to actually define them. Well, when you do that, you have to educate developers <laughs> on what that actually means because they're just used to using Here's my here's the DNS name or here's the JP uh, the the Java endpoint for my database connection string and they just go they don't care about IP addresses they don't care about ports so we have to go around and educate them on what this actually means you have to know what your application is talking to what databases what dependencies and being able to set up those policies so that it doesn't break everything so that's one of the big things I think is just understanding how network policies work and the connections into and out of your application. And I'm, well, I, and just one term that you threw out a few times, pod, <laughs> pod uh, which, yes. which anybody dealing with, you know, containers and such would know what that is. But mm -hmm. if, if someone's new to the container world. Yeah. So pod is the atomic unit in Kubernetes that is a collection of containers. Uh, so if you have, I think the, the, the biggest example we use is something like a proxy or um, maybe like a log aggregator. So you have an application that's running. A good practice with containers is you have one process running in a container, which is your application. So if you have something like a log forwarder, you want to use it as a separate container inside the same logical space. So that would be a pod. So you can have multiple containers inside of a pod, and it's even gotten more specialized. So Kubernetes now has uh, init containers. So if you have you know, checks or if you have data you have to process or something you have to do before your application container comes up, you can use init containers. And then um, I was talking about log forwarders. That's a, is a, a pattern inside of Kubernetes called the sidecar pattern. So anything that is, adds additional functionality to your application you can bolt on as a sidecar. So log forwarding is the big example that folks use, or you can use it for proxying applications. So if you talk about, if we get into service meshes and things like that, a lot of those use a proxy that get injected into the pod so you can proxy the network communication. So things like that. So a pod is, you know, long, long story short, a pod is a collection of containers. By the way, before you jump in, Persona, I just want to state and this is a total non sequitur. They're looking on your back wall. You have solved a mystery for me. What's that? So you have a framed version of your book. Yes. Which I'm assuming was sent to you by O'Reilly. Uh, I believe so. 
Yeah, so I have the same framed version of my book, and so, and it didn't tell me who it came from. And since it looks exactly like the framed version of your book, I think we both got it from O'Reilly, but they, you know, they, they just quietly just sent it to me. Without yeah, it, yeah, my editor didn't say anything. I, I just got a box in there and I opened it up and I was like, this is exciting. Like I, I, you know, I teared up a little bit. Like it was a big deal. When I got that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it back on mine. I haven't actually hung it up. It's sort of, you know, you can see well, it's right yep. there, but it's, it's all shiny. So you can't <laughs> see it. Anyway, anyway, sorry. Go ahead, persona, whatever. You, I'm sure you were going to say something brilliant. You were talking about the networking aspects and how the client had sort of the default all, I think, right? Where everything, uh, well, Denial. They, they had they had the default like everybody yeah. could use any cl so it was multi-tenant cluster so multiple application teams were using the same like development cluster mm -hmm. so my application could talk to development team b's application and there was nothing stopping that even and if they were the, in a different pod or whatever it, right? different pod yeah. different host because that's just how it works from right. a default perspective yeah. so when the security team said you know if we want to go to production with kubernetes we need to have network policies in place. Yeah. And so they swung really hard and said, you know, this day deny everything, deny yeah. everything. And so we had to scramble and put that conversation together. We did like lunch and learns and like, yeah. this is what a network policy is and <laughs> teaching development teams on what they had to do to be ready for that, you know, that hammer coming down. And I guess that was my question is it's already hard enough to get application developers to understand networking and like all the semantics and the securities. And now Kubernetes, from my understanding, right? Pods can come and go, right? Networking is kind of dynamic to some extent, mm -hmm. right? How does someone sort of wrap their head around, okay, what's really happening in the system? Like things kind of happen automatically, right? With Kubernetes, you kind of set things up and it just goes based on what you've kind of told it to do, right? Mm -hmm. But how do you really understand what's going on in your environment? Read my book. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, a, a lot of it is just understanding. I, I Again, this is kind of why we set up the book that it was, is just basics understanding of like how Linux networking and how networking works. You know, opening up a port, being able to communicate that ingress and egress traffic. So, it, I, I, you know, I know that, windows and uh, windows pods and windows kubernetes is coming along but still it's just linux and it's still just an abstraction so understanding like when you create a service and how it communicates with the endpoints and just going through and understanding how that workflow works so one of the troubleshooting things that we walk through is if you have an endpoint that's tied to a service because that's how kubernetes knows what a service is so it's an a service is a in-cluster load balancer. So I can have you know, 50 pods running my service, but I can hit that service by IP or by name, and it will route traffic to one of those 50 pods. So understanding how those pods connect to a service through labels and selectors, it, it basically it's a key value pair match. So if I have a pod that's acting up, I can remove I can remove that key value that pairs it with that service. So it won't be so included have, as part of the routing, it, and it won't. Yeah, have exactly. This. So I'll I'll have I'll now have fifty one pods because that's what that's what happens. That's what Kubernetes does. It says I want fifty pods. I'm going to have fifty pods running. I took I've taken that one out of circulation from the routing, 
and now I can troubleshoot, I can exec into it, I can figure out what's going, what what's happening with that pod. Maybe it was a specific host issue, or somebody was doing a blue-green deployment, and that was just one of the new ones. So I can I still have the pod up and running. So instead of killing it and spinning up a new one, which is kind of the default behavior, <laughs> I still have it up and running. So just understanding how services and endpoints connect mm-hmm. is one of the things. So uh, that probably would be like number two, just understanding how traffic gets routed from outside the cluster and into the cluster and into a pod eventually. So understanding how all of that routing works, I guess would be like point number two, because we were talking about it. So network security policies and just understanding how the routing policies get set up. Because the routing that you're talking about, it's not just the sort of outside the cluster into the cluster, but it's also between the services inside the cluster as well, right? That you can specify that's also important to understand as well right yeah the 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 east-west traffic uh, from a networking perspective so from host to host connectivity things like that understanding how those um how that routing operates and works would also be something i i I think i would put that underneath that same bucket just the host to host connectivity so if i have pod one running on pod two and how that connectivity works and how that conversation happens that's part of the uh, the kubernetes networking model where pods be need to be able to talk to other pods without NAT and use the same IP address that they see themselves as. So if I'm on host A, pod A needs to be able to ping and talk to, you know, on host B with pod B and understanding how those routing rules and abstractions work. um, That's, that's specifically everything that's in um, chapter five. Read your book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Read read the book. Um, How much do this, how how much of this do you think comes into play when we start thinking about what's going on with ransomware and attacks like that. How, how much of that aspect do you think come, you know, have you seen any, any, you know, information on anyone specifically exploiting the fact that anyone's running Kubernetes and Docker, um, you know, anything that falls into that world? Um, more so the applications running on Kubernetes and then like the host protection. So it's still, there's still network hosts. There's still, there's still network machines. So making sure that they are running as lean as they can. I mean, there are host operating systems that are container and Kubernetes specific. Um, for some reason, none of the names are coming to mind right now, um, but being able to run that. So, Understanding that it is still a host running network machines and the pods running a software dependency. So most of the things that I'm looking at right now and I'm, I'm looking to educate myself on more in like 2022 is secure software supply chains. So understanding how we can say that this application came from X, Y, and Z, and this is a trusted source. So understanding that, that's more what I'm looking forward to for 2022. But the same things still count from a, um, a host protection perspective. So using things like um, like Falco from Sysdig, understanding that when a container you know, exits and is trying to, you know, obtain root credentials and things like that, that's that's something that still needs to be thought about if you're running a service yourself. Um, the managed services help a little bit more because then you don't have to worry about the control plane too much versus the data plane. And before you ask the question, Curtis, <laughs> I'll go ahead and walk walk through that example. So Kubernetes has this idea around what is the 
the control plane perspective. So that's the API server. That's the thing that everyone interacts with. So when I say kubectl, you know, list out my pods, things like that, or deploy this Nginx service, the kubectl, and that's how you pronounce it correctly for those who are listening, is kubectl communicates with the <laughs> Kubernetes API. I've heard it called Cuddle. Do you not call it Cube, Cuddle? Cube Cuddle. Um, no, I, I don't call it Cube Cuddle. Um, I, I, I cuddle my cats. I don't cl cuddle my clusters. <laughs> clusters come and go. Anyway, um, so everybody communicates with the Kubernetes API. That's also where etcd and all of the schedules and everything that makes Kubernetes run, run. So all of the controllers um, for secrets, um, all, all of those things run inside of the control plane. And then the data plane, those are the hosts that are running your pods. So when I say I'm running 50 pods of Nginx, they're all running inside of the data plane on those um, on those hosts. So those are the two differences from there. So when I say managing the data plane versus the control plane, that's the differentiator there, but still being able to manage those hosts. So I'm, again, I'm going to talk from, AK, uh, from a, an AWS perspective. You can have AWS manage both your control plane and your data plane, or you can manage your data plane yourself, but then you're still responsible for updating the operating system, making sure that it's secure and it's updated and your all of the systems can talk to each other. So you can either offload that again fully onto an EKS system or you have to manage it yourself. The same thing with the, the, the control plane. Do you think that using something like uh, EKS makes could it make data protection easier because it, it would allow you to do a very quick snapshot of your entire environment and that and that basically at least it's one big giant backup of the environment from a consistent point whatever it is that you need that's part of it configuration you know whether or not you have um, a, a persistent storage as part of it whatever it is it's going to get one snapshot of it quickly I think it would seem that that would make it easier. What What do you think? I would agree with that. I would think the, the way I like to look at it is that with cloud APIs and with the Kubernetes API now, I should be able to spin up my entire infrastructure that is the same exact copy as everything else. The only caveat to that is like applications that are stateless are fine. Applications that require state, that data has to be copied somewhere. So I think that's part of the having that data in multiple copies in different regions. That would probably be better for you to talk to, Curtis. But I think from a Kubernetes perspective and from a cloud API perspective, to have that all defined as code or as software, depending on which side of the, uh, the argument you sit on, being able to have that all deployed via a pipeline through a CI/CD pipeline to deploy and run your infrastructure and your applications. I, I don't want to say DR is a thing of the past. It, it still needs to be discussed. There's still different ways to run DR, but from a cloud perspective, I could be able to spin up everything in a different region that looks mostly the same from the region that we're migrating from. If you have the configuration. If you have the configurations, which you definitely should. Um, so, so free consulting right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and from the networking side of things, like you were saying, so I'm in one region, I might be deploying into another region, right? Um, and let's assume I have my configuration, I have all my data, I'm able to spin up. Does Kubernetes make it 
easy to sort of make sure you're in a segregated network environment that doesn't overlap with where production might run. Like say I'm doing some dev test type scenario, things like that. You can control all of the the subnets and IP ranges and things like that. So there's three generally. So there's the services IP range, the host IP range, and then your pod IP range. You have con- complete control over those, um, both from a even from a managed services perspective and an unmanaged services perspective. So those are all options inside of the Kubernetes deployment. Okay, so you can. S- basically spin up a completely isolated environment if that's what you so desire quickly mm-hmm. and easily and kubernetes kind of handles everything it figures out okay these are the new ip addresses for the hosts and for the pods and everything else that you might need these are all um i wouldn't call them game time decisions but these are like pre-game decisions that you have to make yeah. and understand how that operates um because a lot a lot of us a lot of enterprises are going to be living in a hybrid world for a number of different reasons, right? They can't move something off-prem for data regulations, for security reasons, or just they don't they 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 just don't want to, right? It could be any number of reasons. So there's going to be a hybrid connectivity from a networking perspective. So the network engineers are going, the network engineers and the cluster engineers are going to have to have a conversation around what are what the IP address ranges that I can use to deploy to these VPCs. Now the cloud providers are making it a little easier. Um, there's AWS just came out with, or just came out. I don't know how long it's been available. So like a prefix, so I can set up a prefix for my pods and it can run, I think they've increased it so that it's a private address range and then they deal with the routing. Hmm. So it goes from like an M5 large can run a hundred pods to being able to run like 450 from an IP addressing perspective. So they'll manage that private address range for you and do the natting and everything so it doesn't change. Yeah. But again, that's one of the things, that's one of the benefits of a managed cloud service versus having to manage it yourself. If you would have to do that, <laughs> again, that's a conversation with your network team yeah. who might not be as cloud and API friendly. They're like, right? what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they like the network engineers like to hoard their IP addresses. Yeah. I don't want to argue with you, James because clearly you know Kubernetes more than me. When I hear you say things like DR is a thing of the past, I just want to roll my eyes. (laughs) Because here's the thing. What you're talking about is stateless applications. Yeah. You still need the freaking data because any any application that has any sort of value has got data behind it. That data still needs to have DR, Mm -hmm. right? And also the configuration and all of that stuff that you're talking about that still needs to be backed up and transferred somewhere so that you can do all the Kubernetes magic. And and I would argue that this may be the part where I'm wrong. Kubernetes may come up faster, but it, it's no different than saying, I've got all my VMs running in the cloud, in, in AWS, say for example, yeah. right? If I've got all of that stuff backed up, you know, I can very easily spin that up in another region in AWS. Absolutely. But I absolutely would never say a phrase that sounds like DR is a thing of the past. I would say perhaps traditional DR is a thing of traditional. the past. Traditional, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Like It's getting okay. lower and lower in the stack where you have to think about DR because being able to spin up a server that is completely ready and configured and automated in one region versus the other, that's mm-hmm. that's that's kind of taken care of, right? Easy With a combination yeah. of infrastructure as code and configuration as right. code. You can get an exact copy of your server 
that you're looking for. The data, the data is still a pretty hard problem, right? You have to understand how much data, what do I need? Am I doing a complete hot, hot uh, as a data perspective? You know, what's my risk as a company? Do I want to be able to do the failovers and run or run multi-regional and not have to worry about it? Like these are the types of questions now that data engineers and you know businesses have to understand. So what is my what's my what's my risk tolerance? What do I want to do? How long do I have to wait? It's the RTO and RPO. And you're gonna ask that again. This is a, a well, cloud thing. Well, so. now now it's finally an acronym I'm qualified to answer. <laughs> recovery time objective and recovery point objective. Exactly. How long the recovery should take and how much data we we agree that we should be allowed to lose. Exactly. Um, I, I guess the reason why I felt the need to argue is the best word I have with what you said was that I do run into Kubernetes fanatics, <laughs> right? That are like, uh, well, I don't need to do a backup. I don't need to do anything. And they don't have, they don't have a, uh, what's the word for the, they don't have a, a repository. They don't have any, they have no, no copy of all this really important configuration of their Kubernetes. And I'm like, you know, if your entire world blows your, up, if your Git repo goes down, yeah, you're screwed, yeah, right. So it, it, it it's just you have to do. It, that's my that's my only concern when I hear people say things of like, you know, DR or backup, we don't need it anymore. And I'm like, you do. You just need it differently. Yeah, I, right? I would completely agree. And yeah, I, we'll we'll just say that I uh, I, I worded it that, that way. <laughs> No, I worded it that way to, to foster the conversation. Oh, sure. He just wanted we'll to get a rise out of you, Curtis. We'll yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we get people coming on here saying backup is dead or tape is dead or tape is alive uh, and kicking. Tape is, you know, by the way, uh, we had, uh, when I was at the, um, at reInvent, one of the guys from Spectrologic who has, who has been a guest on the podcast came over and I signed a book for him and I put um, tape is dead. Long live tape. <laughs> that was, that was well, it's the same thing with the mainframe, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we, yeah. We, there's a there's a so you you know uh, Storzilla, right? Persona. Yep. Uh, yeah. So he, I, I've heard him say like you know there's going to be a nuclear holocaust at some point, and there will be in Antarctica somewhere there'll be a mainframe salesman and a tape salesman still <laughs> still selling stuff. Well, I did see that AWS announced a bunch of things around mainframe recently. They did. Well, mainframe conversion. Yeah. Right. Mainframe Converting. conversion, yeah. Yeah. Mainframe modernization, I think is what they called it. Yeah. Mainframe modernization service. That's the one as I know we I work with a lot of financial services and that's a lot of conversations we're having yep. around application modernization, monolith modernization, things like that. So that will be an interesting one that I will uh, definitely be looking <laughs> testing out. Because uh, there, they specifically made some comments about how some rain some mainframe applications sort of went tango uniform. Uh, would be the phrase I would use <laughs> given for that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, persona means tits I, up. I know. Anyway, I've heard that oh, one. You figured it out. Oh, okay. Yeah. You just had a really weird look on your face. Fubar is the other one. They, yeah. they died. Fubar is a great yeah. one. Um, yeah. Fouled up beyond all <laughs> recognition. Um, so that, that that these payment systems went up when they were processing the COVID payments. That it, that, that it, create, it just crashed things. It just wasn't able to, to deal scale. with that level yeah. of stuff. So... Um, 
and then the, finding uh, cobalt so that's, that's developers. Modif- yeah, the co- yeah. Good luck. <laughs> good luck finding a, a cobalt developer. I, I took a cobalt course in college, actually, and I've, I've contemplated, you know, just brushing <laughs> off that skill set. Well, I'm pretty skillset. sure if you buy an O'Reilly book on the subject from 1984, <laughs> it's still, it still applies. I wonder if I. Uh... No, I was looking at my bookshelf. I've still got a majority of my books from college. And <laughs> I was wondering if I still had the, the, the Cobalt book over there. No. Can you think of anything else that you think that, you know, people from a networking space, people that are messing around with Kubernetes should be thinking about? I, I would think as a consultant, I also ask the question of new projects. You know, even though I wrote a book on Kubernetes and I'm a big supporter and a fan or use your term, Curtis, a fanatic, um, I would still ask what business value, what problem are you trying to solve or you think you're going to solve by using Kubernetes? Now, it might be sacrilege in the Kubernetes fanatics circle to say that, but Kubernetes isn't always the answer. What? <laughs> exactly, yeah, I, I, I get that. But the, the way that we like to look at it at Contino is just understanding what business value is it providing. Most of the time when we're looking at things, it's not a technology problem. It is very rarely a technology problem. It's a people and process problem. So when clients ask me like, hey, we want to implement Kubernetes, we're like, that's cool, that's great. We've got people who can help you do that. We've got a guy who wrote the book on it, you know, but we want to understand what is the business value that you're trying to provide. If you know it's faster time to market, it's trying to reduce, you know, bug cycles, things like that, trying to understand how do we tie this technology back to the people and process problems that you're having. So that's, you know, Kubernetes isn't always the answer. So I, I would say the same thing is true of the cloud, right? Um, that the cloud can do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I, I would say first off, if I think my biggest caveat there is as long as you actually acknowledge that it's the cloud. If all you're doing is you just you're just moving replacing your, your data center, cloud, right? Yeah. That's that's not really accomplishing anything other than you don't have to worry about physical hardware anymore. Exactly. That's about it, right? So you you still have all of the same problems, and your cost is going to go up, right? We do but see it, that a lot with you know the cloud sticker shock and having yeah. that conversation with folks when we say, oh, I just want to do a lift and shift. we got to get out of the data center because we don't want to renew or we're having the end of life for our hardware, things like that. We have that conversation all the time. But I, I'd like to tell them, say, I've seen this time and time again. We've seen this time and time again that it's going to cost you just as much or even more because you're going to use, if you're treating the cloud as a data center, it's going to cost a lot. And yeah. if you move into that cloud native space, you know, the scaling and things like that, the managed services, you're gonna, in some instances, like we won't talk about how much a NAT gateway costs, but <laughs> from a managed services perspective, it it's what trade-offs are you willing to make, right? Again, that conversation of my job as a consultant and as a subject matter expert is to provide my customers with the choice and they're willing to accept that risk or not and go through that. So understanding what it takes, like that OTO and OPO conversation, like if you want a hot hot and you want to be able to fail over regions, that's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> but as long as it's tied to your business value and saying we cannot go down right. because of X. So just having that conversation with them, understanding the ramifications of their choices. 
Yeah, I liken the um, the lift and shift model to someone who says, "I'm tired of maintaining my car, and you know, getting the oil changes and the tires and all of those things. So I just want to sell my car, and I want to rent one all the time, but I want it sitting in my driveway, <laughs> right?" It's like, yes, that will be easier. It will probably cost more, right? Exactly. Um, if, if the trade-off you're willing to make. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I mean, I've, I've just moved to Philly, and I've, I've driven my car three times because I don't <laughs> want to deal with the parking problem. Yeah. So I just pay for Lyft. Yeah, it's going to cost me a little bit more, but I don't want to pay for I don't want to pay for parking, and I don't want to have to find parking. And so I just shift the problem to someone else. My wife and I were downtown San Diego, which is where I live, and we were at the Balboa Park, and there was somewhere to eat that was just a, like a mile, <laughs> like, like a mile or two away, and I priced it, and it was going to be like $15 in, in an Uber to get there, and so I was like, you know what, I'm not paying $15 to get right, I can, I can see it from here, like I don't want to pay $15 to get there and $15 to get back, we're going to drive, get in the car, we're going to drive, we got over there, it was $40 to park. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, you had to pay for the parking. And, then yeah. you, and the time I mean, and the stress fun. and all the rest oh. of that. Oh, and, yeah, then, exactly. and by the way, for for the, for previous listeners, that's the night I got food poisoning. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's no fun. So, yeah. So I, I, it was just a lose-lose all night. Well, uh, James, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, you know, I wish we could have Valerie on, but she wasn't able to be here. And so uh, congratulations to both of you for finishing your book thank you very much it was a lot of fun to be on and of course as always make sure to back up your data <laughs> hey, now you're you just say? pandering <laughs> now you're just pandering that's okay I'll, I'll take pandering any day of the week and uh thanks persona uh for your probing questions as well anytime curtis and thanks james yeah no i'm sure our listeners should would love to get their hands on this book and i think it's available on amazon and direct from O'Reilly, correct? Exactly, yes. And thanks again to our listeners. And remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had chance to fix it instead it's all jacked up see how i'll write on facebook about you don't underestimate the things that i will do there was a file but i deleted it too bad your backup system isn't worth the space
run Hoping that just for once it'll be completely done Maybe 